You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Jazz Takar to get tips and tricks for investors from inside the real estate industry. Jazz Takar is one of Canada's most successful real estate agents and real estate entrepreneurs, as well as a podcast host, author, and real estate investor. I have had a lot of you guys, the listeners, reach out to me on Instagram and Twitter asking for me to have a guest on the show with an international perspective. So I set out to find an expert and landed on Jazz. While Canada is similar to the US in many ways, it is also very different. Jazz provides a perspective on real estate investing from someone who is outside the US. We talk about investing in real estate in international markets, investing in the US from outside the US, and we also get into insights into the real estate industry from the perspective of an insider, a real estate professional. So without further delay, let's get into today's episode with Jazz Takar. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Investing. With me today, I have Jazz Takar. Welcome to the show, Jazz. Thanks, Robert, man. Really appreciate you having me on today. Let's start our conversation today by talking a bit about you. Tell us who you are and how you got to where you are today. I am a a local realtor here in Toronto, Canada. I have a team of 34 realtors and 10 support staff. My 10 support staff consists of a media squad, like full-time videographer, graphic designer, copywriter, animator. I'm into animations now. So I got a little T, a little department of animators on my team, and then uh, director of sales and marketing, a couple of uh, min people on the team. And then, as I mentioned, the 34 realtors that really are on the ground, helping our team being number one in all of Canada under the Royal LePage brand, which is Canada's largest real estate franchise. And so I'm very proud, very, very proud to say that out of 22,000 realtors last year in 2019, my team was number one. We, we helped a little over 700 buyers, sellers, and investors. And I've been doing it for 15 years. And it truly is my passion now. My passion is, is not only helping people move into like a bigger home or a smaller home, it's helping investors grow out their portfolio. Out of that 700 transactions, 50%, so 350 deals are done with investors. And I love when the investor catches on. I laugh with people and I say it all the time with all the content I produce myself, which is it's probably the best drug that you can get addicted to because once you get that feeling of that first property value going up, somebody else paying down your mortgage, that's what you get addicted to. And it's nice. It's that light bulb that goes on in people's head like, oh, this really works. It's not just in some book or a podcast or a video. It actually truly works. That's the passion, man. And that's what I'm trying to I lead with content and education with free books, podcasts, and tons and tons of video. And whoever does business with us, awesome. And whoever decides to work with their cousin, Charlie, that's okay as well. There's 6.6 million people in the greater Toronto area. I'm not trying to get it. So for those listening to the show, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later in the episode, but for those that are in the US, how does your brand that you work with, the largest name or brokerage name in Canada. How does that relate to the US? Is that like a Keller Williams? Is that like Coldwell Banker? 
it's identical to like a Keller Williams. I would say, you know, I think Remax is obviously a very household name right across the world. But Keller Williams, from what I know from a lot of my friends in the US and, and people in the business, Royal LePage and Keller Williams are, are very, very similar in that sense. Yeah, I figured giving that context, a lot of people in the US will know the name Keller Williams, Coldwell Banker, Remax. So I figured putting those two together and comparing the two would probably be valuable for the audience. And it's a great point, Robert. Like in Canada, Royal LePage has been around for 110 years now. And so it's the longest standing franchise but it's also the largest in terms of the number of realtors, which is a little over 22,000 now. So let's talk about you a little bit more. When you were first getting into the real estate industry, were you focusing more on being an agent and building that business? Or were you more focused on becoming an investor yourself and then building that business? Kind of simultaneously, I was trying to do both. The way I actually got my license 15 years ago, I, I used to be in car sales. And I thought signing up for the course was me getting educated on how to invest into real estate. When the book came and, and it was done through correspondence back then, it said how to be a registered salesperson. I was like, ah, oh, damn, I thought I was signing up for Like I thought somebody was going to teach me how to invest into real estate. And then as I, as I got the book, I was like, you know what? I've been in car sales for, for three years. I was in the banking industry. I used to sell shoes. And before that, have a paper route. So sales and service has been in my blood since the day I was born. You know, like we all are amazing salespeople. I have two little boys, six and four. I think they're the best salespeople in the world. Like they just don't know how to take no for an answer. But I think it leaves some people. I think what happens is you hear no so much as a kid that it tends to leave you. And for me, it just never did. And so when I got that book, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. I sold some cars to some real estate agents at that time, looking at their credit application. I saw how much they made couple of them, like English was probably the third language. And I was like, okay, look, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm born and raised here in Toronto. I can speak the language pretty well. I'm going to give this a shot. At the same time, I got hooked up with a mentor at that time. He passed away actually almost three years ago, but he took me under his wing for 13 years, like an older brother to me. And he was always in, into investing in real estate. That's why I kind of joined his team at that time. I was just like a regular real estate agent who's helping people with their first condo, moving up and down into a bigger home, smaller home, but always looking at like our MLS, the multiple listing service, just to see like what do properties sell for and what do they rent for? Because growing up, I have two older brothers. My father was a taxi driver his whole life. My mother was a factory worker her whole life. And having three sons, I mean, we got to, we didn't have a lot of things, but we wasn't grow up with anything. So, I mean, we were into sports. The way that they paid for a lot of that, my parents always rented out their basement apartment. They never had a massive portfolio. In fact, they never invested outside of their principal residence. But within that principal residence, they always had a, the basement rented. And as a kid, I didn't like it because you don't get to use the basement apartment. But I quickly learned why my mother did it. And she was fantastic from a customer service perspective to the tenants, like just treating them like customers. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, like some tips I have for landlords and investors, but this is something I can scale. I can get a couple of properties. We all know here in greater Toronto area, there's like a little Italy area, for example, where all, a lot of the Italians live. You know that the gentleman, the grandfather and the grandmother who own seven houses on the street, he still cuts the grass, he still shovels the snow. But what he did and does is buy those properties and just rinse them out. And so that's something that I always wanted to grow, but I never invested into real estate until at least six years into 
that this 15 year career that I've had now. Get asked a lot from new investors. Should someone who's getting into real estate investing get their license? Should they become an agent or at least have their license to become an investor? What are the benefits? What are some of the drawbacks? The benefits are is that you'll get first access to some properties here in the GTA, this greater Toronto area for your outer province and outer country listeners. That's a 75 kilometer radius. We do a lot of new build projects. And so being a realtor, you'll get first access to that. There's a huge benefit from being like a platinum agent in that process. So the builder's going to allocate units and they're going to increase pricing about three to four times. If you buy in the first access of that project to say even the, just the second, you're seeing a $20,000 price increase from the first to the fourth, it could be 70 grand. So having that access at that first stage is huge. I think some of the drawbacks, Robert, is the fact that when you invest time to being a realtor, the money, you can pay someone else to do that. In fact, there's a lot of investor savvy realtors that will do that work. It's almost like trying to fix your own toilets. Like you commented about cut my studio here. I have a bunch of shelves in the room I'm in. Man, I can't put these shelves up myself. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And so I think there's definitely one or two benefits. I think the drawbacks are actually, I want to make sure people don't hear me as like, I don't want you to be a real estate agent. I think you should. If if this is your passion, you want to help people, sales and service is something that you want to get into. But if you're only getting your license to invest in real estate, I think you're better off, for example, raising money, going to network with other investors, learn from what other investors have done really well and where they made mistakes so you don't do that rather than spending the time and the energy of just getting your license. Because other than that, that example that I use with the builder, you're not going to see much more benefits than that. So it's not so much that becoming a licensed agent isn't helpful, but it's just there's a, it's like the opportunity cost. There's better things you could do with your time than do that just to be an investor. Look, I'm a broker, man. I, I manage a team and I have a vested interest for people to use our team and use our services. But the truth of the matter is you don't need a real estate agent to do anything in the whole process. The lawyer is going to close the deal. You can find your own properties. In fact, I wrote a book for anyone who's listening. I mean, there's no cost for this book. It's absolutely free. Let Robert know or get in touch with me. We'll figure it out. We'll mail it out to you. I actually teach people how to buy their own home, how to sell their own home, how to invest on their own, where they don't actually need the services of a real estate agent. Can a real estate agent make it easier for you? Yeah, because we have access at our fingertips, we have experience, and as well as we have connections, and we can quarterback the whole process. But I want to make sure that everyone understands, you don't need a real estate agent to buy, sell, and invest a property. Some people that reach out to me that have talked about wanting to kind of forego the corporate career and go down, they're passionate about real estate, so go down this route of becoming a real estate agent. And they say 20% of real estate agents make 80% of the money in the industry. Maybe that's a little bit stretched. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's accurate. But they say that. I think it's 5 and 95. Yeah, it might be, right? It might even be more. And I've, I've heard that too. So there's a small percentage of real estate agents that make the majority of the money. So how does someone listening to the show today go about becoming a successful agent? So they're part of that small percentage that makes the most of the money. I owe everything to this business. It's been like outside my family. This business has given me so much. It's, it allows me to make friends, make money, and then actually and, and truly create 
wealth long term. I think the best advice I can give to anybody is if you're thinking about getting in the business, really in any business, any industry, is go learn from somebody that's already doing what you want to do because they've hit their head against the wall. You can cut what they've done in half. So one of the main reasons I'm sitting here with you right now, and I was able to say it's our, I have a business partner, but there was three of us and the one partner passed away. But the one partner who passed away, when I met him, he was in the business for 24 years. I'm at 15 years now. And so when he passed away, and so everybody just stick with me, when he passed away, it was about 34, 35 years in the business. At the 15 year mark now, I've surpassed what he was able to do in his 35 years. That's not because, oh, jazz is great. That's because I didn't have to do all the mistakes. I didn't have to make all the mistakes he made. And I was able to double down on the successes he had. So the first thing you should do, and I have you know, four or five team members on my team right now that they're 19, 20 years old. They're just getting started with me. And they even, Robert, don't know what they have in front of them because they're seeing it like, ah, oh, jazz is on podcast. He does all the videos. He has clients calling in. A lot of it's inbound now. Not that we don't do a lot of outbound, but it seems a little bit easier for them, right? And I laugh with them. I'm like, yeah, man, it took 15 years to be an overnight success. And there'll be people, you'll probably mentor someone if you're not already, that'll do what you've done in 15 years in five or seven. Well, the one boy that's with me right now, I call him the phenom for a reason. He's my protege. You're probably dealing with him yourself. Luke, he's just turned 20. I laugh with them. I got socks that are 20 years old still. But I see so much of myself in him, the hunger, the wanting it. Like I think once he gets over understanding how much patience he needs for this to work, if there's somebody right now around me, it's going to be him because he just has that hunger. He's always asking to do more, always putting up his hand. In fact, if he doesn't do it in seven and a half, eight years, it's a little bit of an insult for me. So that's a little bit of a dig to him because he's in the room. Uh, but all kidding aside, you're totally right, man. He's going to be someone and there's going to be others that come as well that should be able to do it because they're also going to do it in their own style. I'm not doing what my, my late partner is doing. It's totally different. I wanted to kind of blaze my own trail, so to speak. And the guys and gals around me, they're going to pick up on the things that worked well that I do, but they're definitely, because I'm not going to let them make the same mistakes that I did. So if someone is able to become a successful real estate agent, is the next logical step for them to open their own brokerage? Or is there a better next step? I can talk about what I did. We had our own brokerage at the start. And we quickly realized that having our own brokerage was not in the best interest of our future goals and objectives. And what I mean by that is, so right now, REC stands for Real Estate Center. That's our team name. It's REC Canada, to be exact. It's under the umbrella of Royal LePage Signature, which is a franchise. The reason we did that is because we realized when we had our own brokerage, I mean, A, we were paying 50% in expenses, okay? But B, it was the bandwidth that it took, like worrying about who's answering the calls in the front, worrying about the accounting, having trust accounts open, all the legal stuff, dealing with the Real Estate Council of Ontario, Canadian Real Estate Association, having all that in place. It took us away, and we spoke about it earlier, right? The opportunity cost. It took us away from our core skills. Our core skills is producing content like now for sure. But even back then, it was basic. It's marketing and sales. That's what real estate is. You need to be belly to belly with people. You need to find out, okay, how can I meet with more people at once? We were able to make these shifts, right? So for example, I just came off of 
doing a 12-hour real estate investing marathon. I went for 12 hours straight. I did a webinar, obviously, with the time of this recording with the pandemic. I had to do it in a webinar status, but I had over 2,000 people watch this 12-hour marathon. Close to 800 to 900 people, Robert, stayed on for the full 12 hours. I was able to think of these ideas, think about the content, bring in the speakers and, and all the stuff around it, because I'm not worried about running the brokerage. Right now, the broker of record, that's what he and his brother worry about. And we pay them 10 cents on the dollar. And I get to focus on A, what I'm good at, B, what I actually like. I like being on a podcast with Robert. That's all I want to do. You know what I mean? And I want to scale that out because now I'm going to be speaking to thousands upon thousands of people all at the same time, rather than worrying about the nitty gritty of a telephone bill and the utility bill. The tipping point for us is that our old brokerage, the phone lines went down. We had 52 agents at that time under in our brokerage, and they're all freaking out as they should. Clients' calls are not coming in, appointments for showings on home viewings are not being confirmed and booked. But that's when I was like, damn, imagine we didn't have to worry about this. And as I believe in anything, like once you define what you want and why you want it, the how will always appear. We went for a coffee, looked up at the Starbucks. Above the Starbucks was a banner, which said Royal Page, brand new office, walked in at 17, 18,000 square feet. This was exactly 10, 11 years ago. We walked around. Back then, it was a big thing like plasma TVs and all that kind of stuff all around the office. And we were like, this is it. This is where we need to be. They're taking care of like, as I do this recording with you now, I see stuff being cleaned and it's being vacuumed and the garbage is being picked up. I didn't worry about any of that stuff. I get to focus on the core competence. So let's transition and talk a bit more about the investing side of real estate. Where should a new investor start? Well, a new investor should start with building up their team. And the first person that they should be, I like to think I'm the most important person in the process as the realtor, but we're not. As I mentioned before, you don't even really need us, but we'll make it easy. The first person is, in my opinion, is an independent mortgage broker. He or she is able to work with lenders right across the country. So in Canada, there's a little over 520 odd so lenders that even me being in the real estate industry for 15 years, I probably only know 18 of them or 22 of them. An independent mortgage worker, he or she, you're going to go to to that independent mortgage worker. They're going to do all the homework for you, all the legwork, all the research. They're going to shop for the best because it's not only the interest rate, what you're paying on the mortgage, very important, but it's not the only thing that matters. But they're going to worry about the terms. Is there prepayment privileges? They're going to look at, and especially from an investor's perspective, you want to work with an independent mortgage broker that has investment properties of their own but work primarily with investors because buying a condo to live in or a home as a first-time home buyer is totally different when you're trying to build out an investor portfolio. This independent mortgage broker needs to set you up, not the first to the fifth property. Really, anyone who got their license yesterday can help you with that. It's going from the fifth to the 700th door if that's what your goal is. And so you want to sit down with an independent mortgage broker first, work out your budget. That will determine which property can we look at first set you up, have that 30,000 foot view essentially for future properties. Then you start to do is build out what I call your real estate all-star team. Start with that broker, a mortgage broker, then look at a real estate broker again, ask if they own investment properties because if they haven't signed on that dotted line themselves and had the, the shakes while they're doing their first property then like I had and so many others before me, then I don't know if you had exactly I'm sure you have, Robert. 
I want to make sure that you're working with somebody who has the confidence and the experience with also helping other investors. Then you build out your real estate lawyer, okay? The secondary team. It's really kind of the second line, right? Your home inspectors, your contractors, your insurance brokers, and so on and so forth. But the first, first stage is really figuring out that team and starting with that broker, but also having the mindset, right? I think the mindset's very important. I'm a big mindset guy is why do you want to do this? Like why? Because it's going to get tough. Lenders are going to say, no, you're going to lose out on property. You're going to have a lot of naysayers around you. Like your uncle or the barber is going to say when he bought or she bought a property in 1972, the value didn't go up or some horror story about a tenant that they're going to tell you. So when all that noise, that external noise comes your way, your what and your why better be strong enough. I don't care about the how. I don't even want you to care about the how because the how will always appear. It's the what and why that you got to be you got to be really strong on. So I think that's going to transition into some of the mistakes that new investors make. What are some of the most most common mistakes that you see investors making? Are they not having that why and that's maybe why they fail or maybe they're not finding their team members in the right order? What are some of those mistakes that you're seeing new investors make? Definitely not working with an independent mortgage broker because I just think like, you know, we have five, six major banks here in Canada. And so they're not a nonprofit organization. Okay. What they do, I mean, it's a great business. It's worked for years upon years. But the red bank, that's kind of their logo, they're not going to tell you about the green bank's best rate in terms. And so just dealing with your own bank, because now in today's day and age, we don't have that, that warm, fuzzy relationship with a personal banker anymore. You know, like everything's done online or on apps nowadays. So you don't have that connection. Like it was definitely privy. Like we were all privy to it back in the days, like 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so starting out with an independent mortgage broker for sure. But I also think, you know, some other mistakes that I've seen is that they get very emotional. And so when you're investing in real estate, and, and that's all I really talk about from an investment perspective, because it's the only thing I know. I don't do this. I don't invest in stocks or, or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just my path is real estate. And so if you allow emotions to get involved, then you'll tend to make more mistakes because you'll think about the curb appeal or I don't like the size of this unit. What you want to look at is the numbers. Numbers need to make sense. That's first and foremost as an investment. It truly comes down to do the numbers work and don't make the numbers work. Meaning like, you know what? I can see that there'll be more rent or I'm not going to put the vacancy rate in or I'm not going to put in property management. That's another major mistake I see people make. I can manage it myself. Yeah, you can manage one, two, four properties, but if you're going to do this more, then you got to figure, you got to make sure you budget for property management as well. Yeah, I see people make that mistake too. And it's not even so much if you scale, it's just like, do you get to a point where you don't want to do it anymore? You know, I mean, it's not bad. You can set up systems. I don't have a problem managing my properties, but if you're having a problem tenant or just a problem property or just start something else, maybe you start a different side hustle or maybe you start a different venture, you get a new job or whatever it is, and you have less time to do that. You need to be able to offload that and still have a profitable property, no matter what the reason is. Someone on speed dial should be a paralegal, right? Just having being prepared for lease agreements, finding tenants. Uh, I think that's a, another major mistake that first-time investors make is as a landlord, they don't treat their, their tenants like, like customers. I'm a big proponent of treat your tenants very, very well. On a bare minimum, if you just look at how much of a principal they're paying down, it's minimum 
eight to nine thousand dollars a year. That's just the principle that they're paying. Forget how much the value went up. Forget the cash flow for a second. Just a black and white number that you can Google amortization schedule. Robert, if I was giving you eight grand, nine, ten grand a year every single year, it would be a little nice to me. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we don't all celebrate the the holiday. We don't all celebrate Christmas, but all of us kind of celebrate the holiday season. An eight, ten, twelve dollar bottle of wine goes a long way. Thanks, Robert, the tenant, for paying the rent this year or this month. If there's anything you need, here's my direct number. Call me. Let me know. It's like walking into Walmart. If the greeter told you to F off as you walked in, you're like, what the heck is going on in this store, right? And so just treating your customers well. And then also make sure that you budget, as I mentioned, for vacancies, but even repairs and maintenance. Just budget for it and treat it like a business, right? Like if Walmart has internal theft and external theft, when they look at their numbers at the end of the week or the month, whatever they do, they don't shut down the store because there was some theft. They understand it. They budget for it. They try their best to have scanners and all that kind of stuff for, for things not to get stolen, but things stuff still happens. In real estate, it's no different. Something's going to happen to a tenant in their own life, like the pandemic. You know what I mean? And so that stuff happens. Budget for it so you're not losing sleep at night. If you know that there might be some vacancy, you might need to paint, you might need to send in a cleaner. When it does happen, it's like, yeah, I already budgeted for it. It's okay. Move on to the next one. Yeah, I really like budgeting for all of the costs. I think that's super important, but I really like the component of having good customer service as a landlord. And I think a lot of real estate investors forget that because they only study real estate. If you read real estate books, not a lot of real estate books really talk about that. It's not really that common to talk about in the real estate space. But if you study business, and which I do, I study a lot about business, can help you build your real estate business. You know, If you read Zappos, the book about Zappos, or even Jeff Bezos, and how they're just so customer-centric and how customer-focused they are, you start to get these ideas and you say, well, I can implement this in my real estate business. And so for me, I know that it costs roughly $1,500 to $2,000 to turn over a unit if a tenant leaves. And that's a component that people don't even think of, and that's expensive. And so this year, one of our new tenants moved in. They were a newlywed couple. They had just got married. They had pets. So we knew they loved their pets and we knew they were newly married. So we spent 200 bucks on them. We sent them a gift card. We said, you're new to the... They had just moved to the area from out of state. We said, here, go have a great dinner on us. It was like a $100 gift card. Go enjoy it. And then we also sent them toys for their pets and, and a little bit of you know some of this stuff for their pets. And they loved it. It was 200 bucks. And if you look on a P&L, that hurt our profitability a little bit. But you know what? It helped the long-term relationship. And I think if you continue to do that in your business, the downside or the loss in profitability is absolutely going to be outweighed in the long-term. It definitely will be because I'm sure that if the next door neighbor's place came up for rent, they're going to think, Robert treats us so well. I'm not leaving. I don't care. We pay Robert $25 more a month, but we have a relationship with the guy. I don't want to leave. Like Those are actual true conversations that happen. And then you know, a lot of landlords will say, talk about horror stories. In the 15 years that I've been doing this, I've heard like five horror stories, thousands upon thousands of success stories, five horror stories. And most of the time, it was the landlord's fault to begin with. Why? Because they treated, like they have this mindset that I'm the landlord and Robert, the tenant, you're beneath me because you're a tenant. It's the other way around. Like, Robert, what can I do for you? How can I be of service to you? I mean, the truth of the matter is they'll probably treat your property better. If you have a human connection with them, they're going to treat your property better. And if you treat them like crap, they're going to be like, oh, you know, the dog can go pee on the wall or pee on the carpet or whatever. Exactly. Who gives a crap? I don't like Robert anyways. Who gives a crap? He doesn't treat me well. And then you'll have landlords that don't show up. Now, don't be a pest to your tenant showing up every week just to check up on the place. 
but you can go once every month. Like, here's something, do it old school. Don't do an e-transfer. Don't take 12 post-dated checks. Tell Robert the tenant, you know what? I'm going to come by and collect the checks. I'm old school like that, man. I'm going to come by once a month. And once a month, how you doing, Robert? And I would look around the place. Did you need anything from me this month, Robert? No? Awesome. Thank you. Like, if you lend me your car, Robert, now, you probably would call me every hour of the hour. Jazz, everything good, man? You don't really care if I'm fine. You're checking, making sure my car. But you rent me out your place and never check up on it. Then you go there seven months later, and you're surprised that there was a grow-up in the back. Like, you might have just wanted to check up on the guy. Maybe once a month is too much for you. Once every two months, you should be checking up on your place. For sure, it's your right. You can check, like I said, more than that. But then you might be crossing that line and just pestering them. What are some of the mistakes that you've made, Jazz, in your real estate investing business? I don't want any property that I sold. It's the biggest mistake I've made. Because like here in the greater Toronto area, on average, properties double every single 10 years. The first property that I bought, I sold it. And it's because I saw the profit, the, the sticker tag on it, like what it was going for five years later. It now would be worth two and a half times more if I just kept it. I could have refinanced it more. It is that my our company slogan for REC Canada is I'm glad I did. And the reason is because we're only here five times, 10 times a day is I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had kept it. It's what I said to myself. The second thing, the second thing is that I didn't do it sooner. This is not for anybody. I don't want to hear anybody. I don't want anybody to hear it like I'm trying to rush anyone. It's not my style. It's just that the sooner you get into the market and investing in real estate, the sooner you'll, you'll start to see returns, but you'll see the best returns, which is compounding. See, when you buy something for $500,000 and it appreciates by 5%, that's $525,000 in year one. But in year two, it's 5% of the 525. Albert Einstein said the best invention in the world was compound interest. There's a reason for it. And so I think my two biggest mistakes is I sold property, which I never should have because I didn't need to. I got greedy. I saw the money. And all I really did is I spent some, some of it to pay off debt, but then I bought more real estate with it. I could have just held on to it and not paid more closing costs. The second is not doing it sooner. So how is investing in Canada different than investing in the US? First and foremost, I mean, just you guys, well, like in the States, anybody who's listening right now, you'll, you have what's called foreclosures. We have a term that we use here called power of sales. Similar, but some major, major differences. And the biggest differences is in Canada with the power of sale, the lender who the mortgage is with, they have to try and prove that they sold the property for market value. So they can't just sell it for what they have in it. They have to prove that they sold it for, that they tried to sell it for market value. So you can't come in and get a property as low as you can on the state side where lenders on the state side, if they have $200,000 mortgage on it, they're going to try to recoup the $200,000 as well as the legal fees, even though market value is 400000 So there's a lot more built-in equity. So that's one of the biggest, in my opinion, is one of the biggest differences. We just don't see a lot of power of sales either in Canada. Like Our banking system here is ultra-conservative. I hate to say it, but back in 2008 and 2009, in the state side, essentially, if you could walk, talk, and chew gum at the same time, you were getting 110% financing. Like, Robert, you need a TV and you need a new deck. Why don't you get financing on that? And people are getting financing. Here in Canada, man, like, it's why we were able to protect and why we were able to protect our economy and, and our real estate values. We had like a five, six-month dip 
because every time the states have a, anytime the states sneeze, we get a cold. That's just how, how it works in both economies. And so back in 08 and 09, though, we had a little bit of a dip, but we got right back up again because our banking system is so conservative. You can have a good job and your tenure there could be very long. You could have a great down payment, fantastic credit. They put you through the ringer to get financing, to get mortgages. So it's a little tougher on the Canadian side from a financing perspective. But overall, what I love about real estate investing, Robert, is that the fundamentals are identically pretty much the same. And what I mean by that is buy a property, hold on to it, rent it out, let the tenant pay down your mortgage, treat the tenant well, they'll pay down your mortgage. Hopefully you have minimum enough for where your income, your rental income covers your expenses. Let the values go up. Everything in between there is called equity and you refinance the equity and buy more. And so you can do that on the state side. You can do that in Canada. You can do that anywhere around the world. And as long as you buy in good areas where there's a population growth, there's a lot of job opportunities. And really me, to me, the number one thing I look for is buying and investing around transit. When I look at world real estate, values increase the most and the rentability of properties is the highest in and around transit. One of the other most common questions that kind of goes along with what we just talked about is how can international folks invest in the US? So being from Canada, what ways have you seen international investors start to invest in the US? We used to do a lot of investing with our clients in Florida, especially after the 0809 crash, because two of our major banks went into the States, one being a TD Canada Trust, as well as Scotia Bank. And so that made it a little easier, but we still needed to put down the minimum we were getting away with was 35% down. And now it's gone to a point where you need to buy with cash. You can get a line of credit, still very, very tough. I'm noticing most Canadians investing into Canada still. And one of the main reasons is, is because we're just very conservative in Canada. Maybe it's one, of the, you know, it's one of the reasons we say sorry all the time. We're just very, very conservative. And so we like to invest in what we know. And the population growth, specifically in the greater Toronto area, is close to 250,000 people year after year. To house those 250,000 people, we need about 55 to 60,000 households. On a good year, we're only doing about 37,000. So we have a major supply and demand issue here. But as an investor, it's fantastic. Not good for first-time homebuyers. Anything, once you have a lot of demand and very little supply, the values go up. That's just basic economics. So not good for first-time homebuyers. Fantastic for investors because... As an investor, you know, value is going to keep on increasing, but you know that the population's coming in, so you're always going to have a steady flow of tenants. Common piece of advice given by real estate influencer and investor Grant Cardone is that you should rent where you live. What do you think about this advice? Do you think it's sound advice? I know I've heard Grant say that. I've watched a lot of wealthy people like employ that strategy. Where they live, they rent. But I want to make sure everybody catches on to what someone like Grant and other influences and other wealthy people do, they still invest into property and rent it out. So there's nothing wrong with renting where you own because your principal residence, in all honesty, is not an asset. It is a liability because it costs you money. It costs you utilities. Okay, if it's a condo, there's condo fees. There's property tax. Can't get away from that. Okay, 
and then just the maintenance of the property where you have to you know, take care of the roof, the furnace, the windows. And so I can see why a lot of wealthy people don't want to have that liability attached to them. I have a, a slightly different twist to it. I believe everyone should get into the market once, like be an owner of property of their principal residence where they live once. And the reason is, is because I've yet to come across anything and stocks, you can do it, but I just find it with real estate, it happens more often and it happens a little quicker as well. That values, when you own the property with passive appreciation values increasing, you can take advantage of that equity. See, as a renter, you can't take advantage of that. And so I say get into it once because when that value increases, you can sell that property. In Canada, legally, you don't tax on selling your principal residence. You then can take that cash. So if you bought something for 500000 10 years later, it's worth a million dollars. Two years later, it's worth 550000 600. Let's use 600000 You sell it after all your costs and expenses, you're left with 575000 You take that $75,000, you now can use it to invest. You could have bought it with 5% down with $25,000, okay? You could use that and invest it into other real estate income properties and then start to rent. But overall, there is nothing wrong with renting where you live. Jazz, thanks so much for coming on the show and providing your perspective on being an agent, an investor, and how non-residents might be able to invest in the US. For those listening to the show today and want to connect with you further, where's the best place for them to go? Appreciate that, Robert. Thank you for having me on, man. The easiest place to get a hold of me and to get to know me a little bit more is my website. It's jazztakar.ca. That's J-A-S-T-A-K-H-A-R.ca. They can order the book. It's the one-stop shop. So again, I do appreciate you having me on. I'll be sure to put a link to his website in the show notes below. So if you guys miss the spelling, feel free to click the show notes below in your favorite podcast player or at theinvestorspodcast.com and go check out everything that Jazz has going on. Jazz, thanks so much. Thanks again, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.